Blog Talk Radio. via Radio Saigon and Cybercast across the country via Blog Talk Radio and later on VFlow360.com. This is Fanatic Radio, America's premier sports music program. I'm your host, Mike Gardner, and it is May 9th, 2014, here in the glorious city of Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and just a few hours away from me making that uh, wonderful step across the stage. I want to give a shout out to all my family members that are in town for this uh, this great day as I will be graduating tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. in Bender Arena. Poetic justice from the uh, the place that I spent most of my time in my school other than going to class uh, for me being working with uh, AU Athletics. Bender Arena was a very spe- near and dear special place for me. I actually think I spent more time there than in the library. hope my parents weren't listening to that because I actually did somewhat a lot of uh, studying. So a great show for you on hands. We'll be joined by our uh, FNAC Radio NFL correspondent Cole Patterson to break down the draft from yesterday and the uh, current second round that will be going on later tonight. Big stories, including Johnny Football going to Cleveland Javion Clowney, first overall pick, and a couple of wild cards. A lot of wide receivers taken in that first few rounds. Allie Tyberski of American University Women's Track, she competed in the Penn Relays and set a school record on the 4x800 team with three other classmates at the Patriot League Championships just a few weeks ago. And John Orovis of ESPN.com, our open wheel expert, will join us to talk about the Indy Grand Prix which is this weekend, and of course the month of May, which is the stoic Indy 500. Shout out to President of IMS Douglas Bowles. Hope he is listening to the show. But um, first, we'll start with the NFL draft. Uh, very exciting last night to see uh, South Carolina's Javion Clowney with, with the uh, first overall selection. And then a couple of interesting people. Uh, Blake Bortles was third. Sammy Watkins to the Bills. Interesting to see how Buffalo approaches that, knowing that they're going to invest fully in E.J. Manuel, pending if he's healthy next year. And then a couple of interesting players, Mike Evans to Tampa Bay. Not sure if the quarterback situation is good down there or not. Odell Beckham at the New York Giants. That's going to be huge, considering that you now have a wide receiving core in front of Eli Manning, of Victor Cruz, Hakeem Nix, and still a solid big blue wrecking crew. And going down the draft board, Dallas opts for an offensive tackle, Zach Martin, not denying the rumors that Jerry Jones was going to select Johnny Football. Of course, why would you? You know, huge risk, but uh, hopefully Cole Patterson can talk a little bit more about Mr. Football and his situation 
in Cleveland. Moving further down, a lot of offensive and defensive linemen taken in the first round. No surprise there. C.J. Mosley with the Baltimore Ravens. Should be an interesting pick. Inside linebacker, pending if Terrell Suggs stays healthy. Ha-ha, Clinton Dix goes to Flo's pack. That's going to be interesting, considering a very old secondary of Green Bay was still a relatively solid offense. Eddie Lacy, the rookie of the offensive rookie of the year, returns from the backfield for them. D. Ford goes to my Kansas City Chiefs. Great to see that. Looking forward uh, in the future, depending on what Tom Ali's contract does for the next season. Jason Verrett, quarterback for a pretty solid secondary of San Diego team that made the playoffs. And, of course, the Super Bowl winning team didn't even have a first-round draft pick uh, as the Vikings got Teddy Bridgewater in the very last pick of the first round. So interesting to see. They had Christian Ponder a few years ago, quarterback, ironically, from Florida State before uh, the Jameis Winston case came about before he won the Heisman and up leading him to the national championship. They had Christian Ponder. He was the guy that followed, I believe, after Brett Favre. And they had a couple of characters like Tavares Jackson under center. And now Teddy Bridgewater, who I'm not really full on thinking he's going to be that great of a quarterback. Interesting that Blake Bortles, though, is going to Jacksonville. This is a Jacksonville Jaguars team that will, in my opinion, be forever bad, considering that they have great talent, but Maurice Jones drew their running back. is very relatively old, getting into the twilight of his career. And then you had a quarterback case. You had Byron Leftwich back in the day. Uh, then you had David Garrard, who was uh, last year or last season, uh, the, su- the surprise shock that he was actually cut from the team. Then it bounced around when the Jaguars drafted Blaine Gabbard, the spread option quarterback from Missouri. And he did nothing. Of course, the team, a lot of new guys, ended up drafting a lineman in Lane Johnson last year from Oklahoma. So now you pick another quarterback in Blake Bortles. But it's good for Blake Bortles, and I bet Flo will agree with me on this, although Flo and I have had countless arguments whether he is the best quarterback in the draft. Flo is... Very high on the Teddy Bridgewater horse. But Blake Bortles uh, played with uh, George O'Leary, pro system at uh, C- uh, Central Florida. They ended up winning the uh, Fiesta Bowl. So he has some credentials playing in the big spotlight on the big stage in a BCS Bowl game. He led a Central Florida team that was pretty bad, had some good receivers, not a very strong defense. But he's a good quarterback. He's got a big build of... Uh, Physical, strong body. Because the key is the NFL quarterbacks. Johnny uh, Manziel definitely is a, a subject of this. Uh, how injury-prone are you going to be? Because granted, college, the college football game and the NFL game, it's it's apples and oranges uh, in terms of they're both football. But you can definitely – but, you know, if in, the, in the NFL or college football, it's definitely got to be like apples to lemons because the NFL is definitely a, a bitter taste in your mouth when you uh, are facing down, are facing down an Adamican Sue, a J.J. Watt, a Patrick Willis, a free safety blindsiding you from backside, 
Definitely could be bad. It could uh, be very in- – quarterbacks are injury-prone in college. Uh, definitely have a big asterisk by them. Johnny Manziel had soldier injuries all last year. I guess believe in the Alabama game, he came out nursing his, sh- his shoulder. Uh, his heroics definitely will be, we'll be talking about later in the show, uh, what Cleveland can expect, a front office that was uh, cleaned out. We talked about it on Fanatic Radio where everything is now reported to the owner as we are now joined by our NFL draft correspondent for the weekend. Good friend of mine, Cole Patterson, joins us here on FR. What's up, Cole? Hey, you doing, Mike? Fuck. How, how is uh? You said yesterday was a very hectic day. Care to uh, go into further detail with it? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, well, for me or for the draft? <laughs> I guess yeah, we'll uh, we'll start with you. Yes, first off, gotta get to our correspondent first. Yeah, well, um, you know, we held a draft party with my site, Turn on the Jets. Uh, you know, Fox Four MSN affiliated blog. Um, we held a draft event on the Upper East Side at Five Milestone Bar. Um, combined with RTU Sports, you know, we were on the po- we had our own podcast going. Um, just kind of had everything turning and had it set up right in front of the TVs on, you know, up to the minute analysis. It was uh, it was a crazy night, but you know, <laughs> the draft itself this was one of the craziest ones in recent memory. Um, trades, you know, trades galore. Um, Blake Bortles going before Johnny Manziel, Johnny Manziel himself, uh, you know, trade, you know, trading back into the first for Teddy Bridgewater, whatever it may be. It was just, uh, it was, it was a crazy night. Are you surprised that Cleveland didn't trade down once, but twice? And, uh, of course, well, uh, the owner denied saying, we're not going to get Johnny Manziel. I'm not going to take this risk. And they ended up trading down twice and ironically picking up, uh, Manziel later in the 22nd pick. Um, I'm less surprised that they traded down. I think at four, once you had um, uh, once you had Clowney and Robinson off the board, you know you could have you could have gone Watkins for yourself. But if they feel good about you know Jordan Cameron and Josh Gordon uh, and Ben Tate as your offensive cornerstones, then you feel good about it, you know. Um, so I'm not surprised they traded down. I'm surprised they traded down to eight and took Justin Gilbert at eight. Um, I think that was. Uh, that was a surprising move to me. You know, Mike Penn, just like Rex Ryan, he loves his cornerbacks. But Gilbert, uh, he was actually – he was my third-rated corner in the back in the draft. I had uh, Darkeese Dennard and Kyle Fuller above him, who ended up going much later in the draft. So, you know, I guess these runoffs know something I don't. Um, you know, but Gilbert, Gilbert is an athletic freak, uh, super fat. He's tall for a quarterback. He's strong. But he's just extremely unsigned. He reminds me of either of the Cromartie uh, cousins coming out of college. Um, you know, just a lot of work to be done on him. But, you know, uh, I guess they just liked what they saw. And then as far as Johnny Mandel, I mean, you know, season of smoke screens, as they say. Uh, he, you know, he was available at 22, traded back up for him. It could have been for Teddy Bridgewater. But, you know, Johnny Mandel brings with him a little extra something that uh, – but Teddy Bridgewater does not. He brings that winning attitude, and he kind of gives the ability to galvanize a much much maligned franchise. Which quarterback is uh, sort of in the in the, in the prime uh, position to lead a, a competitive team? Is uh, Drew Brees was on the Dan Patrick Show a couple of weeks ago, and he said 
uh, athleticism gets you so far, but it's definitely the organization you go to. Uh, which quarterback do you think is prime? Because you got Manziel at Cleveland, Bortles in Jacksonville, and then you have Teddy Bridgewater in Minnesota. Uh, well, let me start by saying that it's certainly not Blake Bortles. Um, probably the least refined quarterback in the class, uh, you know, in the class of the top five or six quarterbacks. Um, yeah, he's got all those measurables to his name, but um, he he doesn't have much around him to uh, to support him. You know, uh, Justin Blackman is suspended indefinitely, uh, you know, you can't use that talent if you're not allowed on the field. Uh, the you know the second wide receiver after him is Ace Sanders, who I'm sure many of the listeners haven't even heard of. Um, and you know they lost Maurice Jones through Toby Gerhardt could be something there as a starter, but probably unlikely. So it's definitely not Blake Bortles. Um, and the truth is, is, I think it's a toss-up between Manziel and Bridgewater because Bridgewater set up in a system with North Turner, who loves that traditional drop-back passer. <laughs> that um, that Bridgewater is, and they've got Adrian Peterson to sort of wean him into the starting role. You know, you don't have to – you put him on a pitch count, if you will. Um, and you also have Cordell Patterson, who you can kind of just give it and go. Kyle Rudolph ain't half bad. <laughs> Greg Jennings has experience catching from a passer like Bridgewater, who I think closely – and I'm not saying he'll ever reach this ceiling, but I think he closely compares to Aaron Rodgers in his style of play. Um and then Manziel, as I said before, you've got Jordan Cameron, Josh Gordon. You know, you've got a stout O-line with uh, Joe Thomas at left tackle. And you bring Ben Tatum, who, you know, could easily be a bell cow for you. And you've got them both in a good setup. I just think – I guess if, if I was telling to pick one right now, I would say Bridgewater just because he's – I think he's ready to go right now. I think Manziel needs a little refinement uh, taking, taking drop backs and throwing from the pocket. Do you think he's ready for the uh, the NFL in terms of uh, the, the play of in college at the SEC? Uh, do you think he should have stayed a year, or do you think he's ready to take on the fast defensive ends? Uh, we're talking Manziel? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I guess that would make sense, SEC. Um, that's, a, that's a hard question. I think I think he's ready to take on the fast defensive ends. Um but I don't know if he's ready to take on the hits or the creativity of the defensive coordinators at this level because, you know, he's a tough kid. We know that. But he's still, you know, as tough as, you can be as tough as nails, but you can't help your frame. Um, he's a small guy. We'll see if he can learn to uh, absorb a hit better, learn when to take hits better. But the truth is, is when you watch his college tape, what happens is uh, defensive coordinators use this sort of mush rush, which is when you take – your outside edge defenders and put them in a protection. So they're, they're basically both spying on the quarterback. They're not letting him run. So he doesn't really have an option. They force him to stay in the pocket, which is what happened to him last year at A&M and why his production did. Um, and, you know, if, if college coordinators are taking advantage of that, you know NFL coordinators are going to do the same thing. So, like I was saying before, unlike Teddy Bridgewater, he needs a lot of refinement on his drop back passing and snaps from, from under center. Um, and NFL coordinators are going to push him and keep him in the center and see, you know, make him beat you with his arm. And I don't think he's ready to do that at the pro level yet. But if he, if, um, 
if Shanahan can find a way to use him and use his legs and get him out of the pocket on bootlegs and, you know, design runs and things like that, then guys the limit. He's Cole Powerson, our fanatic radio NFL correspondent. How about your uh, your Jets reloading over the offseason? Got Eric Decker, signed Vic, and now they pick up a, a cornerback. Do you feel like the uh, the sign of something of good things to come is uh, headed your way for the Jets? Uh, actually, you know, I was a, I'm actually a big fan of the offseason. Um, I say actually like a lot of people are not. Uh, you know, I think it depends on your perspective. Um Something we preach a lot, uh, me and my fellow writers, is that um, you can't define a wide receiver by one, two, and three. You can't say he's a true number one wide receiver. You have a player, and he gives you production, and that's what Eric Decker is going to give you. He put up eight touchdowns with Tebow. You know, he had outstanding uh, receptions, yards per reception. He's good after the catch. He is a productive receiver that is an immediate upgrade over anything else the Jets have on their roster. So you go into the season with him and Jeremy Curley, and I expect them to pick somebody up today in rounds two and three um, who can come in and be an immediate starter as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think the Decker addition is definitely a, a move in the right direction. Um, as far as Vic, I don't really expect him to start. I think, uh, it's, you know, it's a fabricated competition. I think he'll, he'll give Joe a little push, but I think um, – Everybody in a position, uh, in a position of power within the Jets organization, wants Geno Smith to be starter. Uh, I don't think that's a question. Um, and then, as far as yesterday, uh, you know, a lot of people were expecting them to try and trade up for Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, and then, when they were on the board, Darkeez Dennard, uh, top quarterback on, you know, on my big board, was still on the, uh, was still available. That was Brandon Cooks, Marquise Lee. Um, but they went with Calvin Pryor, and, you know, in one of my mocks, I actually had him going there. And Pryor is one of my favorite players in the draft. I like him to um, – he's, he's very similar to an Earl Thomas type, I would say, you know, trying to keep the hyperbole aside. But, you know, he, he hits like Cam Chancellor and plays the ball like Earl Thomas. He's, he's what you want in a modern-day safety. He's versatile, um, and, you know, he's, he's definitely capable – of playing center field, but also coming down into the box. And I think that's a huge boon. Um, and I think it also mitigates the issues the Jets had at corner. You know, if you say, okay, so Dean Milner is your one penciled in corner, then you have a cross from him. Darren Walls, Rosai Dowling, you know, nothing nothing inspiring. Um, and this solves the issue because, you know, you get to over the top, you want a strong center field safety, you can help you out there. But I think they definitely made some moves to put them, you know, continuing this upward trend that they found after last year. Uh, and now it's just a matter of Geno Smith's develop, development and continuing to put weapons around him, whether that be a tight end or a wide receiver in these next two rounds. Who's the dark horse of the first round? <laughs> um, well, in terms of, dark, I mean, I mean, you can pick from anyone, right? Yeah, when you say dark horse, I hear reach. Um, and I think um, uh, the Dolphins picking a tackle at 19, I had him projected in the second round. I think that was a stretch. And I think Marcus Smith out of Louisville for the Eagles. Um, I think, you know, I think uh, that was a stretch too. I, I did not see him going in the first round. For the most part, um, 
the players who were considered first round talent went in the first round and not a lot of people dropped. You know, I expected maybe Marquise Lee to go to the Eagles or maybe Jason Morrow to go to the Seahawks, but you know, people trading around, picking up people and I think, you know, you you get those random dark horses, those uh those reaches and um it displaces a few of those guys. But you know, you can also take dark horse as a positive. Uh, and I think two picks that I personally love um, uh, were Dayon Buchanan and Jimmy Ward. Uh, two safeties, not necessarily the highest uh, rated safeties. I actually, specifically on those two, I did two scouting reports on them earlier uh, before the season started. I said they were two of my favorite players, and they were going uh, under the radar. I didn't expect them to go off the board until mid-second, mid early third, and I was happy and surprised to see them go in the first because Dale Buchanan has the size and the tenacity to end up being one of the better safeties coming out of this class. Um, hardest hitter I've seen come out of college since uh, Laurent Landry. And then Jimmy Ward is a bit undersized, but he is a ball hawk in every sense of the word, and I think he's going to do great things at this level. All right, he's Cole Patterson, our NFL draft and NFL correspondent for Fanatic Radio. One more th- thing before we get you out of here. Good players still on the board that should be or we could see being picked th- uh, either today or tonight or this weekend. All right. Well, uh, you know, everyone is talking about Houston going quarterback at the first, but I think um, it's a toss-up. I think if you – I think Derek Carr is probably the best quarterback left on the board, uh, Fresno State. But the problem is with him in Houston, brother of David Carr, uh, some sore memories there from the 2000, uh, 2001 draft. Because um, he was such a legend, right? Exactly, exactly. Legend of Fresno State, David Carr. No, I mean, you know, you can't, you can't not draft someone based on their, their relatives, but the truth is that, that fan base probably doesn't want to see another Carr under center. You know, it's a fresh wound. But I think, I think David Carr is the best quarterback left. People are talking about Jimmy Garoppolo. He's got a lot of growing to do, but he could be a starter someday. Um, I've already talked about them a bunch, but uh, Jay Samaro and Marquise Lee are definitely the two best offensive uh, skill position players left on the board. Um, Jay Samaro, Texas Tech, broke a ton of records there. Marquise Lee, super dynamic, 2012 Bolitnikoff Award winner. Um, those, are two, those are two of the best offensive playmakers. But remember, this wide receiver class, is one of the deepest in recent memory. And you've got players like Devontae Adams and Jordan Matthews from Vanderbilt, um, Allen Robinson from uh, Penn State. You've got a ton of second-round, third-round wide receivers that would have been first-round wide receivers in a, in a weaker class. Um, so I think, I think that's where most of the talent is to be had at the wide receiver position. Um, Stanley Sean Baptiste is a quarterback who's still on the board who I think will end up being a starter one day. He should go anywhere from the early first. Uh, and then Lewis Nix, um, uh, nose tackle, Notre Dame. Uh, I'm surprised he didn't go off the board in the first round. And the truth is, is that uh, Texans, number 33 overall, overall, first pick in the second round, could really use some help up the middle. Um, so on the other hand, they could really use help at quarterback. So we'll see how that goes. I think those are, uh, I think those are definitely um, the strong candidates. You know, you've got the running back, Carlos Hyde, uh, Jeremy Hill, LSU. There's running talent in the draft. And you've got late-round late prospects like Dre Archer or Colt Lyerla. Uh, 
tight end, Oregon probably would have been the first tight end off the board if it weren't for mental and legal issues. Um, but, you know, someone might take a flyer on him in the seventh round, kind of like Vontae's perfect a few years back, and you could get a Pro Bowl play. Um, so, you know, it's important It's important to watch the draft all every round, all seven, because you never know what you're going to get. And we'll be looking forward to it. Cole Patterson, thanks once again for joining us here on the show. Stop by anytime. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. All right. You can check out his content on the FNAC radio page. That's uh, a blog for the his beloved New York Jets, who selected an ambitious pick, a uh, very good pick in my opinion, of a safety. The players he was talking about uh, before in terms of uh, good players in the draft that you can look out for. Jimmy Ward was 30th overall, a strong safety from Northern Illinois. The player he said with the uh, with the uh, nose for the ball, he'd be playing with the uh, 49ers, a team that made the NFC Championship game. So Jim Harbaugh stacking up his team prime and ready for recovery. And uh, Dayon Buchanan from Washington State, another strong safety. He goes with the Arizona Cardinals. That was the 27th pick from the Saints. And it's funny also how he completely shot down my Blake Bortles thing. He does have work cut out for him being in a, situa- uh, a situation like he is. Interesting about the Teddy Bridgewater, though, because um, when you think about it, you have uh, Greg Jennings from the Green Bay Packers. He's now playing with with the uh, the Vikings. North Turner, offensive coordinator. Someone who uh, did some damage when he was at San Diego, turning that offense around. And you got, of course, you have Adrian Peterson, arguably one of the, the greatest running backs of our generation. So, second round of the draft is tonight, ESPN. I believe it's seven o'clock, eight o'clock. You can catch all the coverage. Some good players, as Cole mentioned, are on the board. In just a few moments, we'll be joined by Ali Tybersky of the American University track team and cross-country, a fellow class of 2014, along with myself, as we get to finally graduate college. She does it, though, in style, uh, contributing to numerous uh, 4x800s, uh, 800s, 1500s, jack-of-all-trades, Talking Chuck before we go to the break. I'm, uh, 426 here on Fanatic Radio. Remember, you can catch the podcast on iTunes and listen to it on bflow360.com. As we are now joined by another special friend of mine, a member of the American University track program. Uh, actually, no. Now, uh, I guess you're now officially an alum, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, almost. Tomorrow morning I will be. So... Uh, do you so? What does one do? Uh, first of all, she's Ali Tybersky of American University Track here on Fanatic Radio. What do you do now that you're officially done with collegiate running? Are you gonna be one of those people that represents a store or uh, what does Ian say? Teams that run uh, unattached in future races, <laughs> or are you just gonna hang um, up the cleats, be done with it forever? Uh, I don't think you can ever be done with running forever. Um, but I'll probably take a little bit of a break. I think I I think I deserve that. What is what is the uh, the ideal break for Ali Tybersky? What's your uh, favorite vacation spot? If you could go there right now, now that you're finished, I guess tomorrow after mm-hmm. we graduate. 
Where's the, 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 the perfect location? Straight to the beach. Cape and Cod. not run. Just relax. You can't do. Uh, would you still be running if you're on vacation or not? Uh, if, if the wind takes me in that direction, I feel like it all depends. Just knowing that I don't have to do it will make it better. You know, I don't have an obligation yeah. to have to get out there. Was it um, sort of mixed emotions uh, during the Patriot League championships, considering that uh, your 4 by 800 team uh, with Julia, Kelsey, uh, and Karina did so well, finished third, but then you realized, oh, as of, when Sunday rolled around, this is the last time I'm be running uh, collegiately? Um, yeah, it was definitely bittersweet. I'm, I was warming up for the race and kind of – thinking about it in the back of my mind and it just it's crazy how fast it went by um but definitely going out on a good note made it worth worth a while and then just the just the week before uh what was it like to compete at the pen relays because uh, most people don't really under understand how important this event is for like american yeah. sports because this thing has been going on for 120 years what was it like to be actually someone running in that event and running a relay Right. So I had never been to Penn Relays up until this year. And, you know, I'd always heard these crazy stories about it, but it's like the largest track meet in in the country. Um, And it was surreal. The environment was just so awesome. And it's like, it was just like a huge track venue. And it was so cool to see everyone coming out to watch track and field. Um, And then actually being in the race was um, unbelievable! Just running in the stadium with all those people watching was awesome. Was the 800 your best event, or was this sort of an event that was uh, thrusted upon you? Um, no, it's pretty much always been my event, um, my main event out in the mile. Would you say? So would you say that? Um, so you've been running it since high school. I'm, I'm assuming. Yes. So would you, would you would you say you have progressed through your four years of college? Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, coming in freshman year was like so hard adjusting to just the way college running is, and especially with the way our coach is and his old-fashioned style of training. Um, but definitely saw a lot of progression, which I was happy about. So. Um, so what what did what did Centrowitz mean to you as a coach? <laughs> You're saying old school old school style. Yeah. Um so he's just he's very he's very unique in the way he handles situations. Um and I don't think I'll ever have trouble with a boss or another authority figure in the future after dealing with four years of him. Um definitely a valuable experience. What was your favorite moment with Coach in terms of him, like giving words of wisdom or some crazy saying that he is, that has he has told you through your four years? Ah, uh, there's a lot of crazy stories, and but definitely the best times are just when you're in a setting with a group of people and he's just talking, running, um, and talking about stories that he's been through and um, his career is it's pretty cool to just sit and listen to him talks about like all these great people he ran with and all the places he's been so it's pretty cool 
Yeah, because most people don't realize uh, he qualified for the Olympics, didn't he? Yeah, he's a two-time Olympian. Yeah, um, that's legit. And now he's, one of the years was when they boycotted, so he couldn't go, but still counts. All right. Uh, well, interesting thing is you um, that 4 by 800 team at the Patriot League when you placed third uh, got yeah. an, an ECAC time. So technically, I guess you, you could, could still run, right, for uh, yeah. to, to get Actually, to the NCAAs? Right. We're planning on competing in the ECACs um, on May 17th. So a week from tomorrow. So you can't. So you can't quit then. You can't stop. I can't, I'm not quite done. I'm not quite done. One more week. Well, I guess is there any, is there any way you can explain what happens after? Because I guess yeah, this is a lot different than than the traditional big big sports when you just go to a bowl game or go into the uh, the NCAA tournament. How does track sort of work? Um. So it's kind of different for track than cross country, but ECACs. You ha- every team can go that meets the qualifying time. And then from there, depending on how you place, you advance. So you'll be representing the 4x8, four, four or are you in a different event? Um, no, we're competing in the 4x8. What are the, what is, are the we other wanna, three? We want to go. Oh, what were Sorry? you saying? What were you, uh, what were you saying? Um, oh, our, our goal is we want to go under nine minutes. We ran nine flat at conference, so we want to we want to go under. Did you have any idea that was a school record when when you happened? Yeah, you did well, that? we knew we knew going in it was a pr- pretty realistic goal um, to break nine oh five, which was the prior the previous record. Um, and so yeah, we ended up breaking it by five seconds. What is, so what do the other the three girls mean uh, mean as teammates? Because in in sports a lot of it is, is teamwork, but in track it's really unique because a lot of the events you're by yourself. But right. surprisingly, so, you set a record with three other three other runners. Yeah, so that's what's really cool about a relay. Um, it's not just an individual race, and it makes um, the actual race a lot more exciting. And you're you're not just doing it for yourself; you're doing it for three other people. Um, and it's a complete bonding experience because you're doing every workout together, um, every run together, you're warming up together. Um, so it's really great. And having myself and Julia as seniors being able to kind of lead Kelsey and Karina, who are underclassmen, has been a really cool experience. All right, we'll get you out of here on this. Uh, before you have to go back and train for the uh, the upcoming ECACs, <laughs> What did it mean to you to be uh, a Division One athlete uh, running cross country and track at AU? Considering that yeah, you're coming coming back from injury, and then you end up yeah. breaking a school record, you end up placing third at Patriot Leagues. Um, it's definitely been one of the best experiences of my life. Definitely a lot of ups and downs, and a lot of really low points where you don't think you can do it anymore. But you know, improving your time little by little, or getting the school record or something makes it all worthwhile in the end. Um, and it's something I'll never forget. All right. She's Allie Tyberski, a <laughs> track runner for American University. She will be competing in the ECACs in a week, you said? Yes, one week. Tune in. All right. So her career, her career is still alive, so don't give up <laughs> on them just yet. Thanks for joining us on Fanatic Radio. Yep. Thanks, Mike.
All right, so we'll head to commercial break. When we come back, John Oriovitz of uh, ESPN.com will talk uh, Indy Grand Prix. We'll discuss some interesting NBA news other than the playoffs featuring uh, Tracy McGrady. You're listening to Fanatic Radio on blogtalkradio.com. Fanatic Radio. What's wrong with that? He fought for his country. It's the reason you wake up on game day and put on your team's cars. Fanatic Radio on Love Talk Radio. Lately, I've been, I've been losing sleep. Dreaming about the things that we could be. But baby, I've been, I've been praying hard. Said no more counting dollars, we'll be counting stars. Yeah, we'll be counting stars. Everything that kills me 
Society, like hot dogs and Cadillacs. With Mike Gardner and Ben Florence providing unique insight from the wide world of sports. He should just retire so he could dip him in bronze and ship him to the Hall of Fame. Playing only the hottest music. The only thing we ever play on the show is Motown and R&B. And always striving for perfection. We're climbing the ladder to success, escalator style. Yes! See for yourself. Check out Fanatic Radio only on Blog Talk Radio. Back here on Blog Talk Radio... Premier Sports Music Program, America's Sports Premier Sports Music Program, Fanatic Radio, Mike Gardner here in studio. We had Allie Tyberski of the American Women's Track Team. She will be competing in the ECAC Conference meet and a chance to go to the NCAAs next week for in the 4x800, a, an event where back-to-back weeks she competed at the Penn Relays and then placed third and breaking a school record. Her goal is to race a sub-nine-minute relay with her, Karina Velasco, Kelsey Budris, and fellow senior Julia Sullivan. Also earlier on the show, Cole Patterson, our Fanatic Radio NFL correspondent. He uh, gave, broke down the first round of the 2014 NFL Draft. Second round is tonight, and we will be joined shortly by John Oriovitz. Live from Indianapolis, a very special time for the month of May, as IndyCar decided to roll the dice and go ambitious, adding a road course event to uh, May as tomorrow, 3.30 Eastern on ABC, Grand Prix of the inaugural Grand Prix of Indy will be on the road course of the famed Indianapolis Motor Speedway. We'll also be talking some NBA playoffs, Kevin Durant winning Most Valuable Player, as the playoffs are heating up, my Wiz are still alive. They are playing tonight, I believe, in Washington. Great to see for the first time in almost 30 years that a second-round game is played in the district, taking on Indiana Pacers team that did not blow us out of the water, unlike the San Antonio Spurs and the Portland Trail Blazers. That series has been completely lopsided. But back to the... Uh, the IndyCar talk. Racing, very uh, very rare we have open-wheel talk here on Fnatic Radio. Of course, the 500 is later in the month. Also, the uh, the pageantry of pole day, carb day, everything you want under the sun is down at the brickyard. But it's, uh, it's, it's some say it's gutsy to add a road course. I say it's great, considering that this is a series that has been slowly losing uh, publicity, slowly losing interest. NASCAR has completely taken it by miles. 
But I stay as true fan of uh, IndyCar. The only thing I think what IndyCar is missing, and hopefully it can happen in May, is something that the series obviously can't control. But American has to win the Indy 500. You look at uh, the, the the greats, uh, and the first uh, four guys that you know, come to mind: AJ Foyt, uh, Johnny Rutherford, and then you have you know, then you have Dario Franchini who's won it three times, and then you got the then you got the Unsers. So obviously, Americans uh, populate that list of of uh, great drivers that have won multiple times here. As we now welcome John Oriovitz of ESPN Open Wheel Coverage. Busy month, as you wrote on your column on ESPN.com, but from a, a journalistic standpoint, how has it been down at the Brickyard? I'm excited by the new content they've added to the month of May, and as a local Indianapolis resident or actually even more accurately, a resident of Speedway, Indiana. I'm just disappointed to see that uh, the crowds were pretty small over the last couple of days, especially given the fact that yesterday the, the opening day was free to the public and only a couple thousand people showed up. Um, I was kind of hoping the locals would come out and give the event some more support, but uh, we'll have to see how the crowd is tomorrow. I've, I've heard some pretty pessimistic numbers in terms of ticket sales, and, and frankly, it's just... Uh, you could put it down to a lot of things. There's a, a lot of things that you can do and spend your money on in Indianapolis during the month of May, especially the Indy 500. And I just, uh, I'd like to see this event succeed just because I think it's, it's more an accurate representation of what IndyCar racing is these days. Yeah. Considering a lot of the majority of the schedule is road courses. Could this have been an event they put at the end of the season or was it having the complete month of May with the IndyCar series, the right decision? Well, that's the that's the big question, and it's the one that everyone's debated since the Grand Prix of Indianapolis was announced. Um, I think everybody agrees that it makes sense for the for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and, and by extension IndyCar, because let's let's be honest, they are the same entity for the most part. It certainly makes sense for for IndyCar to utilize the IMS road course. And the question is, is when do you want when do you run that race? Um, obviously, early May to start the the month of May, so to speak, is one out. Uh, other people suggested uh, more toward the end of the season. I always said, you know, gee, they should run it on uh, on Labor Day weekend and maybe even run it on Monday. And I, I conveniently forget that we've got another major motorsports event right here in Indianapolis that weekend, which is, of course, the U.S. Nationals NHRA drag races. So the debate has been over the timing of it, not whether it, it is an event that should happen or whether it's an event that has merits for happening, um, you know, one of the one of the rationales for for doing it during May was they they attracted maybe four thousand people to opening weekend of Indy 500 qual or practice the last couple of years. Uh, they thought if they could boost attendance uh, the first weekend, it would it would help the bottom line for the speedway. And make no mistake, this is all about revenue generation. Um, a year or so ago, the speedway uh, retained a group called the Boston Consulting Group and and BCGs. Uh, their, their advice was basically maximize your revenue streams. And uh, the, the biggest way to do that was to, to do an IndyCar road race. And, and I think now the question is, is, is when, when is the most effective time to do it? So it's sort of a, a trial and error because the drivers have seemed to have really enjoyed this, the new road course layout. Well, let, you know, let's not kid ourselves. IndyCar racing is predominantly a road racing-based sport these days. Um, all the drivers, with the exception of Ed Carpenter, uh, are, are road racing train drivers, and uh, for them it's a treat 
to race on a, a premium road course like the one at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Now, nobody's going to mistake it for Road America or Laguna Seca or a natural terrain road course, but it is at least a stadium road course that doesn't have uh, the constant proximity of concrete barriers like street courses do, although Ryan Hunter-Ray managed to find some concrete today uh, at the Speedway during qualifying. Um, so it's, it's you know, immediately it, it jumps just because of the quality of the facility and the fact that the track is so smooth and it, it has this beautiful facility around it. It, it. it jumps right to the head of the list of, of IndyCar road racing venues. And I think that uh, one of the reasons I'd like to see it succeed here in Indianapolis is that, uh, you know, since the IRL era, uh, we were constantly, the local media here has constantly been preaching, you know, that ovals are king and ovals are the most important thing. And, and frankly, IndyCar racing has been more and more road racing based, you know, really over the last 30 to 40 years. And this, I thought, was a good opportunity for Indianapolis to see for themselves that, that, uh, that IndyCar is a pretty entertaining form of, of motorsport on, on road races, road racing form. When, when they're used to just having ovals and the Indianapolis 500 ram down their throats. Is it sad that there's not as many ovals as there once was with the, with the loss of tracks like, like Michigan and Phoenix back from the old IRL days? Well, you, it's, it's before the IRL days. Uh, you know, you've got to go back to Phoenix ran IndyCar races back to 1964 with USAC. Uh, Michigan was running IndyCar races since the late 60s, again, under USAC. And then those were cart tracks for many years. So, uh, you know, when, when you want to talk about IRL era tracks, you're talking about Charlotte and Texas and Atlanta and, and places like that. Um, I personally am sad that, that there are not a lot of ovals on the schedule anymore because, for me, when I got interested in IndyCar racing, it was the late 70s into the 80s, and that's when the road racing was kind of coming in, and, and I grew up as a young Formula One fan. And for me, to see this racing series that had kind of the best of both worlds, that had uh, an increasing international influence with drivers, whether it was Emerson Fittipaldi or Nigel Mansell, or whether it was more road courses or street courses like Long Beach. When you combine that with the best of American racing, which was oval tracks and the, the American IndyCar drivers that people were familiar with, A.J. Foyt, Mario Andretti, and then later Michael, and the Unsers, Gordon Johncock, and Johnny Rutherford, it was it was this best of both worlds situation for a while. And it's interesting because Tony George, when he formed the IRL, his intention was to save and protect the oval part of IndyCar racing. And ironically, that is the thing that was hurt the most by the IRL cart split because it was the oval racing that lost its credibility in, in the eyes of, of racing fans. And nowadays, uh, these oval tracks, they just can't make a business case for putting on an IndyCar race. Uh, they, they attract, you know, 20, 30,000 fans at the most, uh, IndyCar is asking for a high sanction fee of a million or a million and a half dollars, and unless you've got a, a huge title sponsor that's coming in ahead of time that you know is going to, to sponsor your event, uh, it makes no business sense whatsoever for an oval track to try to host an IndyCar race, and, and we found that out just three years ago in New Hampshire. They gave them a, a one-year trial. They had some bad luck with weather on, uh, on race day. It was kind of a cloudy day that ultimately ended the race by rain uh, with about 30 laps late or 30 laps early, so their walk-up was very poor, but they they didn't see enough of a business case to bring IndyCar back. He's John Orovitz of ESPN uh, with covering the Indy GP and the Indy 500. Does an American have to win the 500 in terms of restoring sort of the popularity in the sport? As it's been since, what, 2006 and Sam Hornish won? Yeah, when Sam Hornish won, it didn't exactly do anything. When Buddy Rice won it in 2004, it didn't do anything to help. Um, 
I don't know. That's a, that's a tough question you raised there because there's a lot of people that, that seem to think, or at least there's a, a vocal group of people out there who say that, you know, IndyCar racing, it has to go back to its roots and it has to reconnect with USAC and these short track oval drivers. Uh, they need to get American drivers in there. I, I would argue that the weakness is, is in uh, American road racing, developing recognizable stars and, uh, and a path to the top. Um, USAC, uh, which which runs sprint car racing and midget racing and everything, they banned rear-engine cars in the early 70s. And Indy cars have been rear-engine formula cars since the 60s. Um, USAC, really from that moment on, uh, it, it, it it cemented itself into a future of being a training formula for NASCAR. I mean, they're tube-engine, front-engine front uh, front cars that race around ovals. That's what NASCAR is. Uh, Indy car racing... Uh, since the 60s has been a rear-engine formula car that increasingly runs on road racing venues. So you've had this huge disconnect, and uh, the, the traditional American racing fan, the oval racing fan, has become a NASCAR fan. And even when an American driver has succeeded in IndyCar racing, whether it's Sam Hornish winning some championships 10 years ago or Ryan Hunter Ray won a championship in the IndyCar series in 2012, and, uh, you know, he was, he was practically an invisible man. Uh, there was little or no publicity about it. Uh, it it's a tough situation there. Um, I, I like to view it myself as sort of an Olympics-type situation where I, I like to see the best uh, drivers competing, whether they're from China or Russia or the U.S. or whether they're male or female. And I'd like to see drivers, uh, you know, judged basically on their performance on the track. And a lot of these foreign drivers... Uh, they've got great personalities, they've got great character, they've got great talent, whether you're talking about Dario Franchitti or uh, Elio Castroneves or Scott Dixon or Will Power. And, uh, you know, frankly, if, if people are holding their nationality against them uh, as racing car drivers and not cheering for them because of where they come from, that's just a sad situation. Of course, uh, for this Indy 500, a lot of big names are making their return or their, or their rookie debut. you got NASCAR driver Kurt Busch, Jacques Villeneuve, a former winner returns. It was announced yesterday that Elio Castroneves will be racing the uh, quote-unquote yellow submarine, the famous all-yellow paint scheme back in the days of uh, Johnny Rutherford and Rick Mears. Stories like that uh, sort of building up momentum for the 500? Well, when we get when we get up to race weekend, the Kurt Bush the Kurt Busch story is going to take over everything. Um, are, whether you like it or not, he's going to be to American race fans. He's going to be the most recognizable name in the Indianapolis 500. A guy who won a NASCAR championship ten years ago and has won you know, 25 NASCAR races. Who's making his first IndyCar start? Um, and that, that's a neat story. I mean, it's, the guy's going to try to run 1,100 miles and everything. Um, but it, again, it speaks volumes when a guy who these days, I don't want to call him a NASCAR midfielder, but he's certainly not a regular winner or a recent champion in the vein of Jimmy Johnson or, uh, or somebody like that. But when a guy like that's the big story in what's supposed to be the biggest race in the world, and the, the regulars, whether it's Scott Dixon or Tony Kanaan or uh, Ryan hunter Ray, or you know, may essentially get ignored for that fact, that's, that's kind of a sad commentary. Uh, the Villeneuve story is kind of an interesting one. He uh, he obviously he ran two years of Indy cars back in the the kart sanctioned era in '94 and '95, and you know there's there's some old hardcore kart loyalists who like to say that Villeneuve's win of the '95 Indy 500 was the last real Indy 500 before the IRL era came in. Um, 
he went to Formula One after that. He was successful in his first couple of years, won a championship, won a bunch of races, but then he switched to a startup team, you know, in kind of a cash grab, and it backfired on him. Uh, he's he's really bounced around doing limited racing for the last six or seven years, really since 2005 or 2006. Uh, he's run some NASCAR uh, road races. He's done some sports car races, the 24 Hours of Le Mans and everything, and He's had some pre- pretty negative things to say about IndyCar racing since he left, uh, particularly about the IRL. And so it's interesting that Villeneuve is back, that he's actually, you know, has the desire, or maybe it's, maybe it's driven by money, maybe it's a necessity to come back and do it. Uh, but he's, he's said all the right things so far about uh, how, the, how the cars are better than they were five years ago or ten years ago and how the level of competition is, has improved. And, and that's certainly the case. I mean, you can, you can put this year's IndyCar field, the regular group of 23 or 24 drivers, you can stack them up against uh, the top 25 drivers of any era, whether it was 1994 or 1984 or 1964. And uh, it, it's a pretty good tight field. Uh, so it's it's encouraging when you see a guy like Villeneuve come back. Uh, if he does qualify for the race, there's no reason to think he won't because there's only 33 cars trying for 33 starting spots. Uh, it'll be 19 years since his last Indy 500 start, and that will establish a record between Indy starts. And we'll get you out of here on this, John. Uh, 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 for your prediction for the 500, even though it's, it's still weeks away, in terms of drivers with momentum, is, could we see – a first-time winner like we saw last year with Tony Kanaan, drivers like Brian Hunter Ray, Will Power, Marco Andretti, or uh, will we see a, a repeat winner such as Scott Dixon or Elio Castroneves? Well, I think it's too hard to call, and one reason it's too hard to call is that we haven't seen this year's cars on an oval yet. Honda was uh, was forced by the regulations, basically, to, to change their engine over to a twin-turbo setup instead of a single-turbo. Uh, which they've utilized for the last two years, and the Honda engines look really good so far on the on the first uh, road races and street course races of the season. Uh, they they you know they should have won Long Beach. Hunter Ray uh, took out three Honda cars running in the top three there. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how Honda's twin turbo engine is uh, at Indianapolis last year. The last two years, Chevy has really dominated qualifying there, and then uh, Honda managed to win the uh, the 2012 race with Dario Franchitti, and then last year was just kind of a Chevrolet benefit. Um, I'll be more prepared to answer this question uh, four or five days from now when we've seen some practice laps. Uh, last year I had a hunch Marco Andretti was going to be the winner. Uh, Marco is uh, extremely competitive in Indianapolis, and, uh, you know, he just – he needs a breakthrough for his career, and, and frankly, it would really benefit the IndyCar series as a whole if Marco and Graham Rahal could uh, could suddenly find a way to start winning races on a regular basis just to get those those recognizable names out there. Uh, you know, at the Grand Prix today, your front row is Sebastian Saavedra and Jack Hawksworth. And while it's great to see the parody in IndyCar, and it's, you know, interesting to see a couple of young drivers, Hawksworth, the total rookie, up there at the front at the same time, uh, it, it probably isn't going to help the Speedway sell tickets for tomorrow's race when uh, when when the stars, you know, the real stars aren't really leading the field. All right, he's John Orovitz of ESPN.com. Check out his content all through the month of May, the NDGP tomorrow, Indy 500 later this month. Thank you again for joining us here on Fanatic Radio. Hey, anytime. It's been a pleasure. Interesting comments. In terms of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the uh, the constant world changing of IndyCar, as we will now segue 
into uh, the special part of our show. Uh, for those listening live, you can check out the podcast on iTunes or go to bflow360.com or blogtalkradio.com slash fanaticradio as we will now talk some NBA. Let's talk some b-balls. As we uh, celebrated yet another special award for the National Basketball Association, we've had some great awards. Gordon Drogic won the Most Improved Player. But uh, to do that, very to do that and help me out with this uh, and to talk about some other nonsense as well, uh, I'm Flesh and Blood, a member of the uh, Fanatic Radio team, our soccer correspondent, and now part-time basketball for this segment. John Gardner joins us on the show. How are you? I'm good. It's, uh, it's been a busy day so far. So. Oh, is it really? Yeah, of course it's been busy. <laughs> Tough time. Uh, have you watched any? Have you watched any of the NBA playoffs? Because that is what we're talking about right now. Um, I mean, I've kind of followed it. Just yes, on. of course you haven't. Okay, so basically <laughs> to catch you up to speed, uh, Miami has been dominating Brooklyn. Uh, an interesting and very fun series of the Clippers in Oklahoma City, and San Antonio has just ran has beaten Portland like a cheap drum. But our Wizards, the uh, the, the the Washington Wizards, are currently one 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 series with the one seed Indiana Pacers. And they will be playing tonight in the district, the first playoff game, first time in 30 years. But uh, we'll gloss over that as uh, we have a clip of United States national team coach Virgen Klinsman. A lot that you want to cover. You want to make sure that you kind of uh, um, look at every single player uh, in all sorts of ways. You know, not only what he brings individually to the table, uh, what his strengths, weaknesses are, but also what he brings to the table as a, as a piece to the bigger puzzle, chemistry-wise, is he a giver, is he a take, all these things that we talked about so many times, and, and you are very kind of conscious about this is a huge decision, because it has a big impact on that player's life, you know, on this player's future, and uh, so you want to kind of be responsible also for that decision, and, 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 and you want to discuss it thoroughly with your coaches, uh, you want to make sure that you covered all those aspects before you make those calls and to the players telling them you are on it, on the 30-man list, or you're not on the 30-man list. So um, there's a lot of uh, uh, things that kind of come, go through your minds and, and, and keep you very busy also, you know, late in the evening, you know, you, uh, um, it's, it's just you want to make sure that you really made the, the right calls. That's from USA Soccer and MLSsoccer.com. Basically, Jurgen Klinsmann has to make his first big decision, more than the Gold Cup, more than World Cup qualifying. He has to choose a 30-man roster. So, John Gardner, can you explain to the fans and listeners uh, what exactly the stages that Klinsmann has to go through, Because or any coach from now, what, what is all this 30-man, 23-man roster? It sounds like a bunch of nonsense, but hopefully you can clear it up for us. Uh, 30-man roster is they announce a preliminary roster prior to – um, the 23-man, which is the official roster that will be at the World Cup. Some coaches, some teams will decide to do is they'll do a 23-man, just name the roster, 23-man, and then they'll have that through series. They'll, they'll have that roster through, like, series of friendlies and on to the World Cup. What some coaches want to do is if they have a lot of players they want to look at or they want to name a 30-man roster, they'll have that. They'll play in a series of, like, international friendlies and stuff like that and then cut that down. 
So if there's a couple players that are on the fringe, a couple players that they want to look at, or um, players that they're hoping to get back from injury, they can they can whittle that roster down um, from there. But it, it's certainly a tough decision. Um, it's interesting enough, I've actually read two articles in the last two days about players who have been affected based on the um, the cuts from the 30-man roster, one being Brian Ching, 2000, and... Um, 10 World Cup, he thought he was going to be named and was not. And he said that really devastated him from an international perspective, not being able to go back to a World Cup. And another man, Steve Snow, who was a standout in the early 90s, was not named to the 94 World Cup roster, and he quit soccer the year after. So it has a, it truly is a, a big decision for coaches um, to make, especially um, one, especially one in the World Cup year, but I think Jurgen Klinsmann, he, he understands what he's looking for, he knows what he's looking for, and I think he'll make the right decision, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Who are the players that you'd like to see uh, to avoid a potential Brian Ching or Pete Snow syndrome? I mean, that's really tough. I, I don't think I don't think he should select anybody that has been in, that has been just recently called up in the last, like, maybe two games. I, I don't think, for me, I don't think Julian Green should be called up. I think he's too young. I don't think Brad Davis should be called in just for the fact that I, I don't see Brad Davis as a as a World Cup caliber player. I mean, he's a very good MLS player, and I think he's, he does a great job for his team, the Houston Dynamo, but I just can't see him being named to a World Cup team because I think it, it just – I don't know. I, I just don't know if the stage is, is, is right for him or if he's ready for the stage. Um, but that's Considering he's been working cause... at the mothership, um, a lot of big-name uh, guys that went back to the MLS, Dempsey, Michael Bradley, uh, Donovan, who's been in the MLS, uh, they've had really great seasons. Uh, but in terms of exposure to international play, a lot of the guys on the MLS uh, haven't really had a big experience playing against uh, physical players like we've seen uh, when Mexico announced their 30 um, or their 23-man roster, Chicharitos, Dos Santos, uh, Marquez, and company. Brazil was announced the other day as our boy Ronaldinho was left off the roster and Robinho. So uh, their coach is uh, going for a youthful. Well, uh, Klinsman has to sort of decide, and we've seen this in the United States in, the, in years past. Do so you want to go with more youth or with uh, sort of the uh, the old the old heads on the team? I guess now being uh, Donovan, Jermaine Jones, your boy Demarcus Beasley, is it a mix or <laughs> is it the younger the better? I mean, I think it depends on on where you, what you're trying to achieve and what you have to work with. I think, for, at least from Mexico's perspective, they've done a really good job. I think of combining um, some youth as well as some of the old guard because you bring with that a lot of experience. Players that have played in World Cups before, like Salcido and Marquez and DeSantos, and they, they have that sort of international experience. They play at a top level, while at the same time they've combined a lot of really good um, Mexican League players as well, a lot of up-and-coming faces like Marco Fabian and Oribe Peralta, and a lot, of, a lot of players I think that can really bring a lot um, to what they're trying to achieve. I mean, I think for the U.S. it depends on, on what Jurgen is, is going to want to do, because I think while a lot of the older guys have – you know, while a lot of the older guys bring that sort of experience, I mean, you wouldn't hurt to have sort of a younger player here and there just sort of um, provide a bit of 
a bit of energy, a bit of youthfulness, a bit, uh, maybe a different spark. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I think it just depends on, on the style. I think Jurgen, to me, he he's very much about bringing sort of a consistency I don't I don't see him making up making any really big shakeups prior to the roster announcement. I can see him being more like staying very sort of conservative to what he knows will work, but at the same time maybe bringing in a player or two um that might be impactful in the next um coming weeks, the next month really. But I think as a whole I I I would not see I don't think there's going to be a player that'll be named that we haven't seen before. At least in, that hasn't either partaken in World Cup qualifying, hasn't been in, in, in has, hasn't played a major role or had had good experience. I think in the international friendlies, and I think he really, really, um, I guess vibes for the international experience, and he wants that in his players. And so I don't, I, I see that as being a big, a big driving point at least for him. He's John Gardner. Fanatic Radio Soccer expert live from the mothership uh, in uh, New York. Uh, basically, uh, Grant Wallace from Sports Illustrated says that most likely around 3 p.m. Eastern on Monday afternoon, Klinsman will announce the 30-man preliminary and reports that he probably will not decide his 23-man roster till the FIFA deadline June 2nd. Would you wait that long if you were in Jurgen's shoes? I mean, I think so. It depends. Again, it depends on, on what you have to work with. I think a lot of coaches not – other than Jurgen Klinsmann, but other coaches, I think they kind of know what they want to work with. And it just depends, I think, on, on your style. Some coaches like to just name it and get it over with, and you have those players to work with. Um, others like to sort of wait and, and give players another chance. Maybe it's sort of, you know, it, I think it just depends on the style. I, I can see Jurgen doing that because he's sort of waiting for the last moment to see, you know, who can who can make a break or who can be someone that can be in a good, be in good form going into. Because if you start, you know, let's say you've sort of been on the fringe the entire time and you start having a good run of games in these friendlies and you do really well and somebody ends up getting hurt or sort of falls off, I think you can really sort of solidify yourself going into the camp and going into the World Cup that you could be sort of a, a viable a viable asset. So that's something I think that's that's interesting. Um, I, if I were him, I would – I mean, you, you should always probably – I would wait because I think you get a better chance and a better opportunity to see – um, and really, really comb the fringes of what you're looking for, and really mold your team into what you want going into that crucial, the crucial camps prior to the World Cup. John Gardner with all his metaphors. Uh, USA plays uh, their first friendly, uh, I believe June 1st against uh, Turkey in the Red Bull Arena. So by hopefully by that time, the United States will have. It's uh, official 23-man roster, the team that we will be backing 1,000% in the World Cup. Germany released their 23-man roster, one of the teams in our uh, group. So that's for international talk. Uh, uh, one last thing before, uh, before we let you go. Uh, your thoughts on the collapse of Liverpool and uh, your thoughts on the Champions League final, considering if the second year in a row it's uh, teams from the exact same country. Um. I mean, for Liverpool fans, and I know very, I know a lot. Them, I'm sure they're absolutely distraught. It's, it's tough. It's football. It's, it's unfortunate, really. Um, but at the same time, I think it, it's terrific. I think that the, the EPL to have that sort of drama and, um, sort of, uh, just, I guess, nail biting, um, 
towards the end of the season, and it just shows just how competitive the league is and how how difficult it is to really to break away. But I mean, at the same time, it's not over. There's still another another game to be played, and who knows? You know, football has had some strange. It's it's a strange and, and funny game, and if we saw two years ago. Man City won it on the last day of the season, so I mean, who knows? Liverpool is not out of it, but I mean, it's it's tough. It's it's truly uh, it's it's a tough pill to swallow. I think for them, they knew that they had the, the season in hand, and it's tough. But I mean, I wouldn't say that was just one game. I mean, there's obviously you go back and look at the season. I mean, there are certainly moments and and, and opportunities that they missed, and there are certainly moments that define uh, their course of the season. But it'll be interesting. And I think on on the terms of the Champions League final, it'll it'll be a really good game. I think it's a it's a great you know chance to see a Madrid derby in in uh, Lisbon. So there's a lot of um, history and and just sort of uh, tab not so much tablets but sort of press going into the game. There's a lot of talking points, um, and it'll be a great game. I think uh, Atletico Madrid are, are are hitting their form right now, and they're really playing well. Um, in the in the Champions League perspective, and Real Madrid obviously looking for their I think eighth or ninth title. Um, so I mean it, it'll be a great game. I think it's it's going to be a really really good game, and uh, I can't wait to watch it. Me neither. Uh, okay, I'm looking looking forward to it as well. He's John Gardner, our Fanatic Radio soccer correspondent, breaking down the. Preliminaries of Jurgen Klinsmann's United States men's national team that will most likely be announced next week. So then every single soccer pundit in the States can dissect till the nth degree. Dissect it more than an eighth grade science project. John, thanks once again for joining us here on Fanatic Radio. Hey, and guess what? I graduate tomorrow. I know. Congratulations. It's been a pleasure. Um, also, just a quick uh, plug or point. Um, if you have not heard, the Road to Brazil series kicks off May 29th in D.C. and runs to June 7th. This is everyone's last chance to see the stars before they head off to Brazil. Make sure to buy your tickets now, today, at www.roadtobrazil.us. Thank you, Michael. You heard it here first. John Gardner joins us. Thanks again for joining us on Fanatic Radio. Road to Brazil, great time for uh, to catch some international friendlies. Uh, across the country, great to see the United States team take on teams like Azerbaijan and Turkey, also the Super Eagles of Nigeria. They'll be coming to the States. And, but then you can also see Mexico, Ecuador, uh, World Cup champions, Spain, the whole nine yards. But ladies and gentlemen, let's talk some b-balls. From Mike Breen himself, basketball playoffs are among us. Uh, we'll get uh, everyone out in the show on this. Uh, here is a soundbite of Kevin Durant and his uh, MVP acceptance speech. Very riveting, very moving. Gotta love it, though. I'm usually good at uh, at talking, but um, I'm a little nervous today. Um, first off, I, I'd like to thank God for changing my life and re- let me really realize what life is all about. Basketball is just a platform in order for me to inspire people, and I realize that. I come from I come from a small county outside of Washington D.C. called PG County, and me, my mom, my brother, we moved so many different places growing up, and it felt like a box. It felt like there was no getting out. My dream was to become uh, a rec league coach. That's that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to stay home and, and help the kids out and be a coach. 
I love basketball so much. I love playing it. I just never thought that I could make it to college, NBA, or stand up here today in front of you guys and be an NBA MVP. It's just, it's just a surreal feeling. And I had so much help. So many people believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. So many people doubted me and motivated me every single day to be who I am. I fell so many times and got back up. I've been through the toughest times with my family, but I'm still standing. In the game of basketball, I play I play first off because I love it. I love to have fun. I love to run up and down the court. Uh, I told Grant Hill back there, I just got done playing against him, but as a second grader, I had a Piston Grant Hill jersey. That was the first time I walked into a gym, and um, that's why I fell in love with the game. My mom, I think she just wanted to get me and my brother out the house for a couple hours. Um, but when I walked into the gym, I fell in love with the game. And I didn't fall in love with it just because it was me playing. I fell in love with it because I got guys like this. Um, like these guys every single day that push me to be the best player I can be. Local product, uh, Kevin Duran, now our NBA MVP from Prince George's County. Uh, was a high school teammate of our guest last week, Troy Brewer, American University graduate and basketball player at uh, Montrose Christian. Great connection that FNAC Radio has to Kevin Durant. And uh, a more deserving, no, back, back-to-back players that have won MVPs, LeBron James and Kevin Durant this year. Two guys that have been deserving of the award. Rightfully so. LeBron went on that tear when he was uh, up in the echelons of Moses Malone in shooting percentage and ended up winning the uh, NBA title with the Miami Heat, looking, uh, continuing to look for a three-peat as... The Heat are up 2-0 on the on Flo's Brooklyn Nets, but Durant led the won his fifth, his fifth or fourth scoring title, averaged 30 plus points a game, had a career high in the 50s, uh, fantastic year for Durant. Played without a hurt with a hurt Russell without Russell Westbrook, the majority of the season, played the majority played the majority of the season too. I think 80 games. Uh, great to see Durant win it. First time MVP, and. He definitely is a part of a very fun, entertaining series with the Los Angeles Clippers, who are riding a wave of momentum after this whole Donald Sterling thing has finally sort of bubbled down to the end. His wife is trying to uh, maintain uh, ownership of the team, and that that's just a whole other can of worms we're not going to open up. That series, though, I would not be surprised if the Los Angeles Clippers um, can win that series. A two and three seed. We love the two three matchups. Chris Paul, 32 points uh, in his in that first in the, in the win. Uh, they played a night as well. That is on uh, 10:30 Eastern on ESPN. I would not be surprised if the Clippers win this series. They are a fantastic team. Doc Rivers has something some some tricks up his sleeve in the playoffs. That he's a very good motivator. I think he uh, he can outcoach Scott Brooks in this series to lead the Clippers because the Clippers have a solid post game when Oklahoma City obviously doesn't. They've been doing a great job playing defense on Durant. And he, him and Westbrook will go off. It's those second-tier players that the analysts always talk about and that Flo and I always talk about. Who is that next level? Obviously, Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, but then you got J.J. Redick. You have Jamal Crawford off the bench. 
You've got Matt Barnes, DeAndre Jordan. Those, those next-level guys, uh, uh, apart from the, uh, the echelon of superstars on the team, they've done a great job. They did a fantastic job. They closed out Golden State in seven, which I think I, I predicted last week that Golden State would upset the Clippers. Obviously, I look like an idiot, but I think they could upset Oklahoma City unless Kevin Durant. Because now Kevin Durant has all this pressure of the MVP. Where does Durant go from here? Is he a true MVP? Is he the most valuable player? Or is uh, the defense of the Clippers, the, uh, all this pressure and everything going to build up? Who's going to show up inside? Uh, Adams, Perkins, Ibaka. No idea if they can hang with uh, the, the post players of the Clippers. I think just too strong. Spurs, Spurs are my uh, NBA champion pick, and they, they are a, a laughable two games to zero against the uh, the Portland Jail Blazers. They've been uh, pretty much, after beating Dallas in seven games, they've they've been on like a 20-point tear in, in terms of wins. Dallas forced game seven, which was, was great for the Mavericks, great for my Mavs. And yet, a- after that, they killed them in game seven, and they've killed Portland in one and two. The Trail Blazers look like chickens with their heads cut off out there uh, because I think they're just as surprised as I am that they're in the second round of the playoffs. Miami Heat... I would not be surprised if they even sweep Brooklyn or even win it in five games. And also tonight, the uh, Washington Wizards, 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPN, live from the phone booth, uh, Verizon Center. The Wiz take on the Pacers, in which they have home court advantage. They stole a game from Indiana in game one. Of course, Indiana bounced back. But Indiana is starting to find their, uh, their sea legs getting back into the playoffs. That's what happens with these tournaments. Second round teams scout better, play better. So far, it looks so far it's prime looking like a San Antonio Miami repeat of the finals. But I had on Fnatic Radio Spurs Pacers. Even though it'd be sad if they upset my Wizards. That being said, hope they don't. I'd love to see the Wizards advance. But then again, I want my predictions to be right because we're 95.6% of the time, 100% of the time. Also, fun fact before we end the show, yeah, former. NBA scoring champion Tracy McGrady is making his Major League, or not uh, not Major League Baseball, but professional baseball debut. Basically, long story short, he is uh, making his start on Saturday where he's going to be the starting pitcher for the Sugarland Skeeters in the Atlantic League against the Somerset Patriots. He's 34 years old. He's playing on a limited pitch count. He's six foot eight, and I don't think he's ever played baseball before. He ain't no Jameis Winston, and uh, neither are we. Uh, so that'll do it for this episode of Fanatic Radio. Uh, you can catch the podcast on iTunes to get the special content of the NBA playoffs and John Gardner, our soccer analyst, talking about Jurgen Klinsmann's preliminary roster and the road to Brazil. Go to roadtobrazil.us to check out the uh, a local international friendly near you. On the first half of the show. Ali Tybersky and Cole Patterson join us to talk about collegiate track and the NFL draft as that is continuing. Uh, NFL Network and ESPN. You can catch all the football. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to every member of uh, the family that is here this weekend to celebrate the farewell tour for myself, for all of us here at Fanatic Radio. Uh, you can catch it on b 360 the podcast on iTunes and blogtalkradio.com slash fanaticradio. But from all of us here in Washington, D.C., this has been FNAC Radio, America's premier sports music program. I'm Michael Gardner, reminding you to stay hungry. So long. We'll see you next time. <laughs>